Welcome to Scuba Shack Radio, Season 5, Episode 103, recorded Monday, January 30th, 2023. Scuba Shack Radio is a bi-weekly podcast in support of our mission to empower individuals with knowledge, ability, and experience to venture underwater in pursuit of their aspirations and to advocate for ocean health and sustainability. Hello again, everyone, and thanks so very much for tuning into this latest episode of Scuba Shack Radio. I'm your host, Jeff Centropino. Well, I hope that your January went well. Yesterday, it was a really great day if you're a Philadelphia Eagles fan like me. We're going to the Super Bowl. It's been a great season, and we need just one more win over the Chiefs and Andy Reid to make the season complete. Two weeks till the big game. For us here at the shop, January seems to have flown by, and we've been quite busy with our gear maintenance, staff training, a new dive master class, the start of an instructor development course, not to mention our first open water class of 2023. We also had a large Discover Scuba class, a couple of skill refreshers, and some private training. Yes, it has been a busy month, but now it's time for Groundhog Day. I'm guessing we're going to have six more weeks of winter. Why? Because we really have six more weeks of winter. We're bracing for that Arctic blast later this week. Well, February also means Bonaire for us. Donna and I are heading down to Divi Flamingo with our scuba shack group towards the end of February. This is going to be my first trip to Bonaire. We've been trying to get there for a number of years, but something always happened and we didn't make it. We're really finally trying to get this one checked off of our list. On today's show, I'm going to be talking a little bit about a book I just finished by William McKeever titled Emperors of the Deep. Spoiler alert, it's about sharks. But up first is Wet Notes, my news, information, and commentary update. This is Wet Notes here on Scuba Shack Radio for Monday, January 30th, 2023. First up today, I want to give you a little good news that came from that recently signed 2023 big omnibus government funding bill. Earlier, I told you about what was some bad news when they included that Small Passenger Vessel Liability Act. But the good news is that the Drift Net Modernization and Bycatch Reduction Act was also included. Now, this legislation is a bipartisan uh, law supported uh, by Senators Dianne Feinstein from California and Shelley Moore Caputo from West Virginia. So what does this mean? There are now restrictions on using these drift nets that sometimes are a mile to a mile and a half long and reach depths of up to 200 feet. Primarily, these nets are used to catch swordfish and thresher sharks, but they also catch everything else, 
including turtles, whales, dolphins, sea lions, you name it. Now, the act calls for the phase-out in federal waters over the next five years. That seems like a long time, doesn't it? Especially when there are other options like deep-set buoys that are more effective without the bycatch. Now, this act was originally passed in 2020 by Congress, but vetoed by President Trump. But at least now, we've made some progress on this destructive fishing method. Well, you know that here on Scooby Shack Radio, I'm a big fan of Sea Hunt. And yes, it is still alive beyond this podcast. In fact, you can get a rare opportunity to see Mike Nelson's boat, the Argonaut, at the Long Beach Scuba Show this June. Now, the show is being held at the Long Beach Convention Center on June 3rd and 4th. The boat is currently owned by Andrew Falcon, and according to the website Argonaut WM2050, the Argonaut was actually built for the fourth season of Sea Hunt in 1961 and was built by Trojan Yachts in Lancaster, PA. The real name of the boat is Five Sea Sons, that's S-E-A, Sons, and the hope was for a fifth season of Sea Hunt. The story is that the Trojan Yachts was recommended by Rod Serling from the Twilight Zone because he owned a Trojan boat. But wait, this is just the last Argonaut. There were other boats named Argonaut throughout the series. In season one and two, um, it was a 1957 Chris Craft, and in season three, they used a 1959 Eddie Craft named Argonaut Two. Five Seasons, a.k.a. Argonaut, was Mike's last office. Now, there's a lot of great trivia on the Argonaut WM2050 website. It would be really great to see that boat. Maybe someday. Maybe someday at DEMA. You never know. In a previous installment of Wet Notes, I told you about a website, I Dive New England, that is run by Maura Keen. This website is really a gem if you want to learn more about diving up here in New England. Maura is continuing to expand the website with more information, weather, tide reports, and most recently, she added a blog by Louis Figueroa. His most recent blog is about a holiday tradition they started back in 1979 up at Nubble Light in New York, Maine. They have this event where they raise a fully decorated Christmas tree out of the water. It was an in-depth article on the whole story of this unique program. Now, in addition to the blog, I Dive New England also has set up a YouTube channel, and there's some really cool stuff about diving up here. Check out the video on how to do proper lobster and scallop diving. Moore is just so passionate about diving up here in New England, and it clearly comes across on I Dive New England. Shearwater Research has recently uh, updated their firmware for their Perdix 2, Petrol, and Turek dive computers. The Perdix 2 and Petrol, the latest version is V95, and if you own a Turek, that latest version is V23. If you have the Perdix AI or Perdix or, uh, or Perdix, V93 is the most current firmware update. 
if you own a Peregrine, you're going to want to make sure you have your update uh, to V86. Now, I originally saw the news article, uh, the news release on Facebook post, and then went out to the Shearwater website to see what else was new. When I was at DEMA, I suggested that Shearwater send email notices to all their authorized dealers. That way, we could get uh, stay out in front of things and send notices to our customers about firmware updates. Now, I did go back, and I checked my Perdix AI and realized that there was a firmware update needed. So if you own any Shearwater, now's a good time to check your version. And remember, the guidance from Shearwater on those for you Perdix owners is to remove the battery when you're storing that computer. The word I got from Divetronics is that when the batteries uh, run down, they leak. And even though you have the computer turned off, it's still using some battery power. And if it runs down and leaks, well, let's just say that isn't very pretty. So I told you when I started Season 5 that it would add a little more commentary and opinion to the podcast. So here's something that's been on my mind for a while now, and that's dive shops having access to pools for training. Now, in my opinion, this is a very big issue that many dive shops, both small and maybe even larger shops, are facing, and it is sort of quietly being ignored by the industry as a whole or at least I think so. Here's what I mean. Now I know that some larger operations are fortunate enough to have an aquatic center as part of that operation. I'm not sure how many of those facilities are out there, but as a strictly scuba diving center like us, I would venture to guess most are in the same boat as we are. We have to search out, convince an aquatic center that we're a viable customer, and then contract at a a rate that is economically feasible so that we can charge a reasonable price for training. Let me tell you, it's tenable. We are fortunate that we have been able to establish a very great working relationship with a local YMCA, and the foundation of that relationship is the aquatic director. We have also looked to engage with other YMCA pools to serve as alternatives or offer training in other communities. Those relationships didn't work out so well. I'm not exactly sure why those aquatic directors didn't seem to want to work with us. Some of the feedback that we got was that they didn't have lifeguards to support our being at the pool. Let me come back to that one. We also tried to get into other private facilities, and they told us either uh, they, they wouldn't allow us to do scuba diving or they wouldn't work with us, or they were asking a very high hourly rate. So we're left with few options, and should our only source become unavailable, well, we're pretty much, no pun intended, out of the water. I believe that the entire industry needs to participate in solving this problem. Could the training agencies, for example, collectively use their power to negotiate with large pool operators like YMCAs to have agreements with local dive that local dive shops can leverage? Is that realistic? I think so. Even if it was looked at in the past and not viable then, well, things have changed. And given the headwinds facing our industry, it might be time to revisit that. Let's get back to the lifeguard issue. As dive professionals, we're all trained in rescue and first aid. 
uh, we are all instructors, and who better to handle scuba emergencies in the pool than us? I contend that that local lifeguard is probably not the best option. I get that the liability issues exist, but again, with the backing of training organizations, there might be ways around the no lifeguard availability response when we're trying to book a pool for training. It's no secret that pool availability is a major issue for dive shop. The question remains, will this continue to be an issue that we as small dive shops alone have to solve, or can something be done collectively as an industry? Well, that's it for this latest installment of Wet Notes here on Scuba Shack Radio. One of the things that I hope to do this year is to get a little more reading in. And with that, I also hope that I'll be able to review some of those books here on the podcast. Now, I've been putting together a tentative reading list, and up first on that list was Emperors of the Deep by William McKeever. Now, I mentioned this book a while back here on Scuba Shack Radio. Last April, Emperors of the Deep was featured in the Into the Blue book club that Reef runs. While I wasn't able to read the book back then or attend the book club meeting, but I did make a plan to get that book. The full title of the book is Emperors of the Deep, Sharks, the Ocean's Most Mysterious, Most Misunderstood, and Most Important Guardians. Now, the book was published in 2019, and it really takes us through William McKeever's two-year journey to learn more and understand sharks, and the tremendous perils they're facing. Perils that they needn't face. Like a lot of people out there, I probably didn't think much about sharks as a kid. We would go down to Atlantic City or Wildwood, New Jersey, and spend time in the ocean, and I never really worried about sharks. But things changed in 1975 for so many people. Yes, Jaws. Suddenly, sharks were evil creatures bound to destroy humans. But there was also a big shark scare in 1916 when over a 10-day period along the New Jersey coast, four people were killed by shark attacks. These attacks took place in Beach Haven, Seagirt, and Matawan Creek, and that spans about 70 miles. They attributed the attacks to a great white shark, but some suggest it was more than one shark and probably even a bull shark in the area of Matawan Creek because of the fresh water. I still didn't think much about sharks until I became a diver, and it wasn't until I had my first real encounters with sharks in 2008 in Nassau. It was on, it was on one of those dives that I truly gained a deep appreciation for these magnificent apex predators. In the first several chapters of Emperors of the Deep, McKeever focuses on four specific species of sharks, the great white, mako, hammerhead, and tiger sharks. Early in the book, he starts his journey in Massachusetts with Dr. Greg Scomo from the Massachusetts Division of Marine Fisheries. Dr. Scomo is a regular at the Boston Sea Rovers Clinic, and I always enjoy his updates on the work that he's doing. From there, 
He is on a journey that takes him around the world, investigating the challenges facing sharks globally. Needless to say, all creatures in the ocean are suffering from man-made pollution and the impacts of climate change and global warming. But there are also three other major human-produced practices that threaten to wipe out sharks in the ocean. First is destructive fishing methods, resulting in significant shark bycatch. Then we have the absolutely inhumane and appalling shark finning. And finally, equally appalling to me, are shark tournaments. William McKeever starts his journey after witnessing a shark tournament in Montauk, New York. He was shocked at the carnage of dead sharks piled on the docks, only to be discarded. He tells us that he thinks of this as a murder scene. It is again against this backdrop that he determines to understand more about sharks and the reason behind the killing of a hundred million sharks a year by humans. Yes, that's a hundred million. Along this journey, McKeever introduces us to some of the world's most interesting people when it comes to sharks. There is Jell Atama from the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute, better known as HUI, and then we meet Mark Quarantino, Quartiano, also known as Mark the Shark, the legendary charter fisherman from Miami. As he seeks out more knowledge of sharks, we hear from experts in all facets of shark biology and behavior, including Frank Fish from Westchester University in Pennsylvania, Tristan Guttridge working at the Bahama or the Bimini Biological Field Station, often referred to as Shark Lab. And then there's Carl Meyer from the University of Hawaii and George Burgess from the University of Florida, who has compiled the most definitive uh, research on shark attacks. Spoiler alert, as Burgess puts it, remember that humans are not part of the menu for sharks or any other marine mammal. We are not part of their ecosystem. As we make our way into the second half of the book, it's time to discover the relentless attack attack that the humans are waging on all shark species. Chapter 8 is titled Bearing Witness, and it focuses on the efforts that Greenpeace is doing to monitor and deter illegal activities on the ocean. Now, Greenpeace was founded in 1971, and it's based on the principal uh, form of passive resistance called bearing witness, being where the illegal activity is happening observe, and report. McKeever heads out to talk with Greenpeace about how the illegal fishing is attacking sharks across the globe. The destructive fishing methods, like longline fishing, is indiscriminately killing sharks. I can't even imagine a 150-mile longline dropped over the side catching anything in its path. Equally disturbing is the way these ships operate. Chapter 9 discusses human trafficking at sea. To operate uh, these indiscriminate killing vessels, they need manpower, and it's supplied through forced labor. Young men from poor backgrounds are tricked, drugged, or beaten into service on ships from which they can't escape. So not only are they using uh, essentially slave labor to illegally fish, One of the only ways that these men can make any extra money from sharks is by shark finning. As McKeever writes, desperate men carve up millions of sharks to collect a few breadcrumbs for their labor. 
As we make our way through the book, the author seeks uh, to, to dive with tiger sharks in Australia, only to be shut out. He lays out the case why shark tourism is more valuable than shark killing. McKeever seeks out shark warriors, those who are focused on protecting sharks, like Leslie Rochat from South Africa, who founded the Afro Oceans Conserv- Conservation Alliance, and we also learn about another shark warrior in South Africa, Tamsin Zwig. While McKeever doesn't get to dive with tiger sharks, he finally does get to be in the water off of South Africa in a cage, diving with great whites, thus completing his two-year journey. Now, there's been a lot in the news recently about Guadalupe permanently suspending cage diving with great whites, and that had to do with several issues. Plus, I'm not sure if the cage diving up here in the Northeast with the sharks is still in operation, but I heard that that it had more to do with insurance. I do know that efforts by activists like the Spicy Shark have essentially ended shark tournaments in New England. Unfortunately, according to EcoWatch, there are still at least 70 East Coast tournaments being held. I was really taken aback by the fact that winning these tournaments could make an individual 90 to 250,000 in prize money and wagers. Think about that, and then take a look at the Shark Allies website and decide if you agree that these tournaments need to end. So I would highly recommend Emperors of the Deep if you want to learn more about sharks, their perils, and advocates. Perhaps it's books like this that can help drive change, like the new U.S. laws on shark finning and the protection coming out of CITES recently. Being informed matters. Well, certainly some positive things have happened to help protect sharks, but that doesn't stop the illegal activity. Sharks and every living thing in the ocean deserves our protection. I'll be talking a little bit more about that down the road. Well, this wraps up this latest episode of Scuba Shack Radio. I'll be back again in a couple of weeks with more. Until then, once again, I want to thank you for listening to the podcast, and I'll talk to you soon. For now, take care, everyone. Scuba Shack Radio is a bi-weekly podcast supporting our mission to empower individuals with knowledge, ability, and experience to venture underwater in pursuit of their aspirations and to advocate for ocean health and sustainability. Talk to you next time.